said, yeah. What else do you think I said, huh? We would like to salute the most uh, straightforward group of thieves we've heard about in a long time. Los Angeles and the Annals of Crime. A group of thieves, apparently unable to force open the door or window at a discount store, used a stolen bulldozer to smash a 10-by-10-foot hole in the rear wall during the weekend. Please. <laughs> Thank you. That was real good, Mark. <laughs> Those guys really wanted it bad, man. Uh, they, they, it turns out that they stole a bunch of radios. What a letdown. That shows them. I mean, nothing but radio. But uh, <laughs> I like the idea. But uh, nevertheless, uh, we would also like to salute the president of the New York City Board of Education, who suggested that the school system use astrology to predict pupil behavior. Pupil behavior, excuse me. According to the editorial, it says, we're not kidding, he really said it. If he thinks astrology is a worthwhile pedagogical aid, he might as well go whole hog and give guidance counselors instruction in phrenology, with purports to tell character from the bumps in the head and palmistry, which does the same thing with creases in the hand. He might even try tea leaves, tarot cards, and crystal balls. One thing is certain, he didn't read his chicken entrails right, or he never would have made such a totally silly statement. Thank you. Yes, higher education marches on. I can just see the kid going down to the office to get the bumps on his head read. <laughs> Don't you know what phonology is, Lee? It's exciting. Hey, listen, um... The other day, I was I was being interviewed by Casper uh, Citron. Let's do a serious-type show tonight. What do you say? Great. Yeah, no, very official. We've gotten all kinds of letters from people on this subject, so I might as well answer some of the letters. Very interesting. As well as the fact that we were talking to Casper Citron, who was interviewing me on Wanda Hickey. The show is going to be on the 21st, right, of October, something like that. We get talking about reviews, which are very fascinating in the field of, of writing, and I've been getting a lot of letters from people saying, uh, what about reviews? They, they want to know what, you know what the reviews have been about on the book, because most people only read one or two papers. So I'm going to read two very interesting reviews, only because there have been you know, people writing to me about it, and this is not in any way, shape, or form an attempt to, to uh, you know, do anything other than that. But reviews are interesting. And uh, they're interesting to the person who writes or creates a book or a play or a novel because of uh, a lot of things. One of the most interesting aspects of reviews is uh, you gain an insight, really, into what your work does on a nationwide basis to people who live in very different areas, and that means reviewers. So if a reviewer is living in, say, uh, a place like, uh, or let's just take a place for example, like Salt Lake City, uh, and you write a book on the West, we'll say, his review will be very different than, say, the New York Times reviewer will, re will, will do it, because it's a very different viewpoint on the whole subject. On the other hand, if a book is written about New York, and uh, you read a review and say a place like uh, Los Angeles about it, it's going to be different than, say, uh, The Village Voice review. Very interesting differences. So for that reason, tonight as a special thing, I have selected two reviews. We have a whole package of them. See, most publishers, and my publisher is Doubleday, they have a big, clip, a big clipping service which gets reviews from all over the nation. And uh, they, they, they come in big packages from all different places. 
So uh, you get reviews from places like, uh, oh, play, oh, wild places like uh, a television script. In fact, I actually got a television script of a TV show that reviews books in, uh, I believe it was St. Petersburg, Florida, wasn't it? Or was it Sarasota, Florida, someplace like that? They send you a script. Where they get this, I don't know, but they do. Uh, you get reviews from places as, oh, Mexico City and, and uh, interesting places all over the world. So I picked two that are very interesting because one represents the East, where we live, and where most of you probably live. And this is a, a review from the New Haven Register. I took a review that was totally out of the New York area, which is a representative review. It's from the New York, or rather from the New Haven Register, which is a good... Uh, uh, literate paper in a college, yes, very official paper, in a college town, which uh, has a big reading public, so the reviews are important in a town like that. Uh, and it's a good review. I mean, well-written and very thoughtful. But it's interesting to, to listen to the difference. Are you interested in this, Marty? Okay. Here's one from the New Haven Register, and it's, an, it's got a headline, a big headline. It says, Nostalgia is Real Fun. By the way, this review was written by Edward Woodyard whom I've heard of along the line. I don't quite know where I've heard of. I've read something by him or about him. So if any of you readers or listeners out there who knew Edward, who Edward Woodyard is, W-O-O-D-Y-A-R-D, give us a call. Uh, but I've heard of him somewhere along the line. Anyway, here's what he says. Nostalgia is real fun. Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters by Gene Shepard. Wanda Hickey is one funny story among eight funny stories. Previously published in Playboy, these vignettes of Shepard's growing up absurd is placed in a northern Indiana town where the ambient red exhaust of the steel mills seasons the life. The stories, for the most part, are, and may this overused, overplayed, overkilled word go the way of relevant, groovy, and chauvinism, nostalgia. Shepard's childhood must have been one series of anecdotes. The charm of the book lies in Shepard's skillful storytelling. He can gracefully weave a good yarn. He writes of every man's memories, easily placed and remembered by the reader. It says his lusty, graphic, campy writing style, I didn't know it was campy, tantalized, tantalized with Tom Wolfishness. Curiously enough, I've never read Tom Wolf, So uh, I'll just have to honestly lay it out and say that. Tantalized with Tom Wolfishness. Now, do they mean Tom Wolf from North Carolina or the guy with the orange tie and the purple suit? The one with the silk shoes with the, with the silver buttons. Is that the one? I'll be damned. It says, his lusty, graphic, campy writing style, tantalized with Tom Wolfishness, and probable universal backdrop situations enhance the wonderful and delightful characters. Grandstand passion play of Delbert and the Bumpus Hounds is the opening gambit. The Bumpuses are country bumpkins from the Kentucky Hills and move next door to the Shepherd family. They are the liveliest, most cantankerous, and zaniest group brood of hillbillies since Ma and Pa Kettle. Shepard describes antics and humorous incidents to create the image of the bumpuses. Shepard then tells the ultimate incident, the tragedy of the ham. He warns the reader and then discourses the meaning, feeling, tradition, and preparation of the ham. Its impending taste is the orgasm of his father's palate, and dutifully disaster vilifies the ham. The second tidbit is County Fair. It is a memory trip for the Indiana State Fair as Shepard sleepily wades through a Dick Hames imitation. He, uh, that, it opens up with that. 
the recollection is filled with cotton candy, taffy apples, pie contests, motorcycle races, and a towering, trepidant, retching ride on the rocket whip. Shepard moves from the fair to the school ground in Scott Farkas and the Murderous Mariah. Scott Farkas owns the Murderous Mariah, a top which twirls opponents into deadly tailspins. Shepard clandestinely acquires a top, the Gray Wolf, and trains it to challenge Scott Farkas to a winner-take-top contest in the schoolyard. The wooden gladiators spin into the ring as a throng watches with the intensity of witnessing a cockfight. Ollie Hopnoodle's Haven of Bliss is the eternal story of mom, dad, and the kids going on vacation. Shepard's description of his father, mother, and younger brother give the accompanying anecdotes an element well above typicality. The star-crossed romance of Josephine Kosnowski describes Shepard's love. I love reviewers who tell the plot of every one of your stories <laughs> as a review. It says, the star-crossed romance of Josephine Kosnowski describes Shepard's love from afar from the girl from East Chicago who moved next door. He walks purposely in front of her house and gazes at her through the window, plotting how to ask her for a date. He gets the date like the discovery of black teeth under the veil of the Moslem girl with beautiful eyes. The fantastic Josephine Kosnowski emerges through the front door, almost assaulting her pubescent but tiny next-door neighbor. But alas, the Kosnowskis move, leaving Shepard with bones unbroken. The return of the wimpy doll is the weakest of the stories concerning a package of old toys received at his bachelor's flat. The story lacks the empathy of the other tales. The toys are particularly singular to Shepard, and so are the memories. This vignette doesn't work as well as the others. By the way, I agree with him on that, incidentally. No, as a writer, no. A writer knows his work. He should. And I agree with him on that. However, except I would like to make a point after the review. This is a, you rarely hear a, a writer answering a reviewer about the specific. It says, the remaining two stories, Daphne Bigelow and the spine-chilling saga of the snail-encrusted tinfoil noose and the title yarn of the collection are paramount and fecund. By the way, that's a great root, uh, word. That's a, that's a reviewer word, and I would suggest you look it up. It's a groovy word, F-E-C-U-N-D, fecund. Well, that means uh, <laughs> rich and ripe and, and uh, full of... Uh, worms or something, but the fecund is... Uh, <laughs> anyway, Daphne Bigelow is the poor boy, rich girl on only date story. Shepard takes Daphne, his biology lab partner, to the movies. His impressions of taking the bus to her house, the cramped talk with her father, and the chauffeur drive to the Orpheum are absorbing. But the episode inside the theater, with necking couples, loudmouth popcorn bag crunchers, candy throwers, paper airplane pilots, and John Wayne on the screen is a highlight. The working man's Friday night at the movies precedes the adolescent Saturday matinee. Shepard recognizes the subtle nuances of making the first impression and remembers his efforts well. He did all right with Daphne, but he invited another girl to the prom, providing Wanda Hickey's night of golden memories. Wanda is not as beautiful and as classy as Daphne, but she's better in algebra. Everyone who has ever attended a high school prom at any age will rejoice in this final story. Polishing the car, renting the tux, ordering the corsage are all skillfully and amusingly told. The story itself is sheer wonder. Sweating from the Indiana heat inside the country club, 
Wanda is ignorant of Shepard's hand damming the rivulets of sweat on her back. The heat produces flash thunderstorms, and the top is down on the Ford convertible. Putting up the top drains the battery. Tragedy after tragedy doesn't keep the promenaders from their enjoyment. They eventually arrive at the after party at the Red Rooster. Here, sitting across from Wanda, he drinks bourbon for the first time. His report on the funny reactions reflects Shepard's ability to remember first-time events for the reader and his marvelous comic sense of timing. This scene is spectacular. After this, all else is anticlimax. It is almost sad to see the happy times end with the last word of this story. And happy times is what nostalgia is all about. Well, that's Edward Woodyard. This is WOR New York. Uh, do you find this interesting? Now, that's from, remember, that's from New Haven. The key word with this guy is nostalgia. Remember where he lives. He lives in New Haven and in a college, a university town in the far eastern part of the United States. Hit the ding-dong. There's a promise for America. Promise for America. Right new promise just for you. Promise just for you. Chrysler Plymouth. Chrysler Plymouth. Chrysler Plymouth. Chrysler Plymouth. Plymouth. Coming through. Coming through. The kind of dealers that you look for wants to do much more for you. The kind of guy who thinks that you are number one. Like a friend that you can turn to. Like a friend who's here to stay. The kind of dealers that America wants to There's never been a better time to buy. See America's number one Chrysler Plymouth dealers. Your Chrysler Plymouth dealers of New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County. Yeah, you know, this, uh, to me, I, I, I hope this isn't boring you. To me, it's very interesting because uh, you get totally different views. And, and uh, I've, I've noticed this about many other productions. Now, I'm not just talking about my work. Uh, it's that uh, I've seen plays, and I, I don't agree any longer. See, I think the whole country is pretty much at the same level of literacy today, what with television and education, although it is commonly believed in the East that out there they're not. And I say you're wrong. I say there's a fairly common level of literacy across the country. There's just different viewpoints. No, just very different viewpoints. And uh, to me, it's, uh, uh, I, it's more evidence that, that very little communication is really possible between areas of our country where conditions, geographical I'm talking about, uh, are so very different and possibly different. Do you have that, uh, that general tire thing in there? Hit the ding-dong there. Yeah. Oh, man, listen to those bugles. Need tires for winter? Don't miss General Tire's great mix or match offer. you got to listen to this very carefully. It's all involved. Mix or match the Jet Air 3, General's best four-ply nylon cord tire, and the winter cleat, General's rugged four-ply nylon cord snow tire. Your choice at two for $38, four for $76, plus federal excise tax per tire. White walls are only $3 more each, and larger sizes are priced in mix-or-match sets. So don't, match, don't miss this great mix-or-match tire offer this month. Drive in at the big red General G sign near your home or office. Get General Tires and go, oh, it's an involved commercial. That's not meant to be read out loud. That's meant to be studied at your leisure, like crossword puzzles. 
Number eight, in White Plains, see Bud Monze and Steve Honig, General Tire Service, 376 Terrytown Road. And in Mount Vernon, see Ed Wazilski at General Tire, 22 East 2nd Street. That's his name. Okay, Ed. All right. We're back now. Have I given the station break? Oh, yeah. One more one more quick note here. Uh, answer a lot of letters and stuff. Uh, I'm going to be at Bloomfield this Saturday, Bloomfield College, this Saturday, October 16th, and that's at 8 p.m. this Saturday, and we're going to be in live, of course, Bloomfield College in the gym, and that's in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Now, if you'd like to find out about tickets this week, don't call a station for crying out. Poor Bell. She doesn't know we're still on the air. Call tick for ki- ticket information. Call area code 201. That's area code 201-748-9000. That's Bloomfield College. And they'll tell you, well, you know, about the tickets. By the way, I'm going to be in Knox Hall, the Bloomfield College bookstore, that afternoon from 3 to 5, writing obscenities in Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. If you're around there, okay? 3 to 5. Again, that's going to be in the Bloomfield College bookstore in Knox Hall. Is that Alexander Knox they're talking about? Well, Knox Hall, I mean, it has to be named after Knox. It certainly isn't named after the gelatin, is it? I mean, for heaven's sakes. Or is it John Knox? You don't know that there's several Knoxes in history? You didn't know that. Stick with me. You'll learn a lot. All right, now, here is, a, here is another review. Now, listen carefully. Let's get back down to what we're doing. Now, this is, I, I purposely, we had a whole stack of them. I just reached in and looked them over, and I picked this one out of another part of the country. And uh, a part of the country, incidentally, which has quite a literary tradition. Uh, this, uh, this is a review on the same book. And I'm fascinated at what this guy says. Very different from what the other one says, and I'm talking about philosophically different. You notice the first one talked about nostalgia. Shepherd's child that he kept referring to. All right. Here is a review in a, in a uh, column entitled Lively Arts. Apparently they review many things, and it's a big column in this newspaper, which happens to be the Tuscaloosa News, which is a big paper in that area. Uh, it's in Alabama, but it's, it's, it's one of these wide, regionally read papers. Now, here's what he says. Now, this is a guy in a very different part of the country. Now, I picked this part of the country specifically because there were many reviews from the Midwest who knew much about the area that I was writing about. So those reviews also are a little... Uh, Personal, in other words, uh, their uh, guy may be from uh, Hammond, Indiana, writing a review. You see, so they're not really very fair. They're they're all good, but they're not very objective. Is what I'm looking for. Okay, this is called for those who still enjoy laughter. Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters, by J. F. Goosen. Now here's what he says. If, in this veil of tears and turmoil, some of you still enjoy a good laugh, then rush to your bookstore and buy Gene Shepard's latest. If this strident, pungent, no-holes-barred satire doesn't absolutely lay you out, you'd better see your doctor. Fast. Shepard's world is the world of childhood. Listen carefully now. Here's where he goes off from the other, other reviewer. Shepard's world is the world of childhood, but childhood as it really is lived by actual children, not the candy cane concoctions of nostalgic adults. Through the eyes of his grammar school protagonist, you know, he doesn't say 
Shepard's life is a protagonist. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fictional character, the eye. Through the eyes of, the, of his grammar school protagonist, and then he says, evidently an unsentimental portrait of himself when young, Shepard sights in on and scores his family, his friends and enemies, his associates, both young and old, and the whole crazy, seedy, genuine world of childhood is laid out before us. You notice, he's not talking about nostalgia. He's talking about childhood the way it is. Very interesting. Now then he goes on to say, this book is notable for a few things that it does not do. For one, it does not avoid recognizing specific ethnic types and their individual specific idiosyncrasies. No laundered, quote, we're all brothers, even though we don't realize it, euphemisms. People are matched with each other and their environment and society with a fine disregard for currently fashionable sociological waffling. Quite a surprise to find in any book published in 1971. The language is often harsh, but totally true to life all the same. The situations will call up memories for people of any age over five. <laughs> but for any reader who doesn't mind just possibly having his prejudices stamped on, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories will repay attention with 350 pages of marvelously funny and totally pointed, relevant satire. Now, very interesting. I suspect that 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 the more you get into the rarefied atmosphere of of uh, the academic world and the East, pretty much, and I live in the East, the more you tend to think about life of the child as being something somehow related to the past. That that life uh, that life, in other words, going to a county fair is something that used to happen. See what I'm saying? Not realizing that every state in the Union has about five county fairs that every kid out there goes to. Now, you don't necessarily go to them in New Haven. So, so, the, so that's what I'm trying to, to point out. But the interesting thing here is that, that uh, one reviewer says, I'm writing about childhood as it is now. He's not, no, no point nostalgic, nor memorabilia. And he recognized it as fiction. The other guy uh, from uh, New Haven uh, believes that this is nostalgia. Well, <laughs> I, I, only, I only say that this, I think, is because of the great difference lived between people living in an urban academic atmosphere and those living in pretty much the rest of the country. Uh, great areas out there, and in fact, right across the river. It, by the way, the, the county fair piece is not based on the Indiana County Fair contrary to his writing. It's based on the Flemington, New Jersey fair, which I attended in 1968, just as, the, as I was writing this story, and that's what it was really written about. So, <laughs> so much for nostalgia. Uh, so, so it's a, to me, it's, it's a fascinating subject, and I didn't, I didn't want to burden you with this, but so many people have written about reviews, and they want to know what reviewers are saying. I don't know why. We're living... In, a, in an area where the reviewer almost uh, totally controls people's ideas and thoughts. If a book gets a good review, it's a good book. But if it doesn't, well, it mustn't be good. And books, uh, like sex, like movies, like plays, are extremely subjective, especially when you're dealing with a subjective, uh, a subjective world. Now, if you do a book on Vietnam, that's really a world, you know, you're, it's, a, it's a world of events. Uh, if you do a book, though, on... Uh, 
and life as it's lived. That's that's individual. I, it's seen through my eyes. Uh, it may not be seen through the eyes of you or, you know, the reviewer for the Times or whoever it might be, but it's a it's a fascinating subject. And I, the only again, as I say, the only reason I brought this in is because there it is. Now, uh, yeah, it, it's kind of laid out. Now, the two specific attitudes. Now, I, I do believe that, that uh, and, I, and I'm, I'm beginning to think this is one of the problems with television. Uh, I, think, I think great areas of TV, which is produced both in Los Angeles and New York, are beginning to drift away from what is happening, really, daily, in most parts of the country. Now, this is not done purposely. It's just done because uh, we don't pay much attention to what people in, in Wisconsin think. Uh, nobody worries about it, unless they, we just want them to watch. That's all, just sit and watch. They're marks, in other words, uh, in the carnival term. Uh, you're just supposed to watch, and that's the end of it. But, you know, I'll tell you, I, uh, I, I keep hearing things all the time, watching TV, and I keep, keep wondering uh, whether or not the people who do much performing on or acting in and, and uh, dealing with television on a regular basis, whether or not... They're aware of some of the, the some of the total falsehoods that they're that they may have uh, completely absorbed and not knowing their falsehoods. Uh, I have to say that I was I, I saw Cronkite tonight. I was down in the newsroom and Cronkite was on talking about uh, aviation, the control system in aviation, and uh, I was astounded at his, his lack of information <laughs> and at some of the broad statements he made about general aviation or by the one of the points he made is this new under this new control system no longer will student pilots now be uh, cluttering up the airways and landing at uh, Kennedy why well, if I, I've never known a student pilot to land at Kennedy all my years of flying of course not uh, but the, I suppose a lot of people out there think they do but uh, that that's part of the whole thing I mean about drifting away from from what's happening out there, and it may not be done purposely, but I think it may be done subconsciously because we're subjected to a barrage of editorials constantly in our world, and we don't ever really ultimately believe our own eyes uh, as to what really is and what isn't. The printed page is a powerful thing, and uh, I, I uh, looking at, at uh, as a writer. Uh, and and meeting writers as I did last week, I was out at the Playboy Writers Conference and meeting writers from all over the country. Because uh, to me, I was the one thing that bothered me about it. And I, I don't think I mentioned this on the air. Uh, I was astounded at the at the curious, almost uh, well surprisingly uniform thought processes of the writers. In other words, they were almost all in agreement on almost every subject which surprised me. I thought there would be wild arguments about almost anything, but no. Well, writers are curious these days. They, uh, and I, I think most people are curious these days in the, in the, in the idea that we're polarized uh, so much in our life today. And so if you mention certain things among the writers, you, you just take 15 writers out of the group that I was with, and I, I went right through. Uh, I, I met maybe over 75 out of 100 that were there, and I listened a great deal, and I was surprised to find that they were almost all uh, kind of uniform in what they thought about major things. You mentioned Vietnam. They all had the same idea. 
Yeah, and it's surprising among a hundred major writers from all different parts of the country. You mention, uh, say, Agnew, they all have the same ideas. Uh, if you mention, say, Attica, they almost always all agreed. And I, I worried about that, uh, in spite of the fact that I may have agreed with most of them on those subjects. Personally, no, it, it bothered me, you know, to realize that, that, that the, the uniformity of opinion is rather deadening. And uh, to me, uh, the writing community should be a world of ferment, you know, <laughs> people <laughs> bandying ideas back and forth. I, I suspect that Mencken would have gotten thrown out of that meeting. They simply would have thrown him down the air shaft. He'd have started to laugh at Nat Hendoff about halfway through Hendoff's first tirade, and that would have been the end of it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and, and so this is, this is all part of the scene. And I, I, I didn't want to you know, burden you with it tonight and quite possibly bore you with it, but I've been getting all kinds of letters ever since my book came out from people all over the country about curious subjects. I guess all writers, all writers do in one way or another. And uh, some of them were, you know, deal with reviews. A lot of guys want to know about reviews S for some reason. And there's been a change back in 1967 when In God We Trust came out. And uh, there were reviews. And at that time, the Herald Tribune was, in, was, in, uh, was publishing, and there were big reviews in that paper and other papers, including the New Yorker. And that. But I didn't hear much from the readers about reviews. They didn't seem to care that much. Uh, in 1967. Well, five years, or about five years have passed, roughly. The book came out in six, late 66. And uh, five years have passed. And now people tend to, are great leader followers today. There's a, there's a great follow the leader thing going on. Oh, very much so. Uh, in curious ways. Uh, by follow the leader, the kind of thing like, like uh, I read a note in in uh, one of the in, in the village voice and they were talking about a political figure and it said that and of course they said it approvingly that the people would follow him this man no matter what party he ran on no matter what slate he ran on no matter what he said they would follow him and they said it with approving it's in the current issue of the voice now that was that wouldn't have happened in 67 nobody would have said a thing like that so we're we're, we're living in a uh, in a time when Especially kids really tend to be great leader, very leader conscious. Our conscious, our leader. Uh, every commune has a leader. Uh, the Charles Manson syndrome, in, in, in a modified form, I'm talking about. Yeah, well, of course, that's the far out thing. Uh, far out. In other words, that's the far out extension of that follow the leader thing. But uh, there's all gradations from out there all the way back into here. But uh, it's a matter of problems. <laughs> was that Edward Woodyard calling? No. <laughs> well, uh, I guess one man's nostalgia is another man's reality, though. Now, see, that's another thing. He may be nostalgic about his life, and uh, whatever it might be, and, and, and by nostalgic, he may think about his life with a certain attitude. And although, you know, that's an interesting point that, that I've never yet been able to discover the real answer to. Almost any writer unless he's writing about current events in what, you know, the hard reportage. We'll say David Halverson is working on a book on Vietnam. This is reportage, uh, and it's what they call hard writing, but in that it uses hard facts and it's deals, dealing with the situation. If you're doing a book on the Israeli-Arab uh, conflict, that's a hard, they call that hard writing. It doesn't mean that it's difficult to write. It means hard facts, okay? Now, in the case of, uh, of, of a writer who's writing fiction, it almost follows that almost anything he writes 
has to be uh, dealing with some aspect of his past experience. Uh, it's very difficult to to uh, to attempt to deal with experiences you have not yet experienced in the future, unless you're attempting to deal with science fiction. Uh, I happen to be in Chicago, for example, uh, talking to James Dickey, and Dickey had read a series of poems all about the time when he was uh, he was diving in in the river down in the south. Dickey's a poet, and he was diving in this river in the south, and he saw this beautiful girl. He was eight years old, and from that time on, his idea of a beautiful girl was always this girl uh, in this in this boat or on the bridge that he saw when he dove in the river at eight uh, when he was eight. Now nobody nobody labeled that nostalgia, and it was pure nostalgia. <laughs> That's pure nostalgia. And, and so I wonder what, what it really is. What is it? Yeah. Uh, well, I can't read that on the air. It's a nice thought, but it doesn't really make much sense. Uh, very nice. But uh, nevertheless, I, I don't quite know what, what it means. What's that mean? Now you're mad because I, I couldn't re How could I? Oh, I see. Uh, nostalgia is, is, to me, the glorification of the past. Look it up. Anybody got a dictionary out there? Anybody got a dictionary? Give us a call and, and uh, give us the dictionary definition of nostalgia. Uh, nost you'll, you'll be surprised. Nostalgia is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a romanticizing of the past. It was beautiful, in a sense. It's a... Uh, looking back on things and forgetting all the bad stuff and writing only the you know how beautiful it was actually my writing is quite the opposite and that that uh, writer in Tuscaloosa saw that that these people lived in these stories I've written these people you notice I didn't say me these people lived amid great uh, clouds of blast furnace dust <laughs> and uh, they they uh, they coughed out their lives writing in fourth-hand Oldsmobiles to weedy lakes in Michigan for their vacation, and then it rained for two weeks. This is nostalgia. <laughs> it's about as nostalgic as Catch-22 is about World War II, that favorite war. Uh, yeah, well, I'm saying that with tongue-in-cheek, of course. Now we're getting the definition in. Do you find this uh, at all intriguing? I do. Uh, of course, uh, like anybody else, you, you, uh, you're always intrigued by... Uh, incidentally, speaking of that... Uh, uh, about writing. When a person writes, of course, I suspect that any time anybody who finds himself laughing at something, if you look back on your life with bitterness and anger, that's not called nostalgia. If you look back on your life and laugh like hell and fall over backwards at how ridiculous it was, that may be called that. I, uh, You see what I'm saying? And he hit the right thing, growing up absurd. I think all people grow up absurd and have at all times in history and even prehistory. Now, what I'm saying here is really, there is no such thing as sense. See, whenever you say absurd, you're implying that there is a real way to do it. And I say we just grow up. And as a person grows, he, he goes through various stages of understanding and misunderstanding, insight and total, total uh, kookiness. As, as he sees the world around him, he may have moments where he sees it clearer than other people, but those are rare. I met one of these people who believe that children see the world the way it is and speak the truth. That is 
about as far that's that's that is the kind of statement that George Orwell would have found fascinating. <laughs> I mean, he really would have. Uh, uh, the guy who, who who invented the term newspeak. Uh, newspeak is where words all mean the reverse of what they say. So if you say the word love, you're really talking about war. And uh, if you say the word peace, you're really talking about uh, war. And if you use the word evil, you're talking about good and so on. And there's a great deal of that drifting around in our world today. Uh, and one of those ideas is that children observe the world for what it is and speak the truth. This is... Uh, uh, in fact, one of the most interesting things about kids is how spectacularly easy they find it to lie. Children have been notorious liars. If I look back on my own childhood as any example... <laughs> And uh, they've they've been very good at it, and and uh, and generally find uh, trouble uh, trying to understand the world because after all they're pretty new on the scene, and uh, it's not so easy when you're new on any scene. But uh, we're getting the uh, definition of uh, stop calling. We've got one good definition. That's all we need. Do you have it written down, Lee? Okay. I hope we're getting it here soon before we go off the air. Hint, hint. Oh, yeah. But uh, I was uh, bringing these two out. I just brought these two in tonight because of the, the letters that have come in. And uh, they've been fascinating. For those of you who are intrigued by writing, uh, and a lot of people seem to write letters to writers all the time, asking them on advice on how to write. Uh, this has happened to me many times. Now, here's the thank you, Lee. Okay. Nostalgia. Dictionary. What dictionary? Well, dictionary. Uh, World Book Dictionary? Okay. Painful yearning for one's home city. Well, that's the last thing I've ever said about it. <laughs> well, I'm reading to you the definition. A painful yearning for one's home city. Well, uh, you hear, you've heard me many times uh, say that one of the great moments of my life was when I left the steel mills and the effluvia drifting down, and that comes through all my stories, I trust. Homesickness. Well, that certainly isn't in my work. Uh, wistful or excessively sentimental yearning for irrecoverable time. My God. Uh, again, uh, this, this, I hope, does not come through my work. Yearning for, I find, mostly in things like uh, the summer of 42. Uh, this is nostalgia. This is uh, the good old days. Uh, and you find many people around talking about the good old days, even though they're only 15 or 16. Yes, one of my friends edits a magazine here in town, and he's in his very early 20s. And he's very nostalgic for his howdy-doody days. And I, I shook him one day. I says, come on, Doug, get out of it. What do you mean you're howdy? Oh, he was, he's very nostalgic for the days when, when howdy-doody was on. And, and, uh, and here's a guy at 22, nostalgic already. And I think, well, that's, uh, that's a curious kind of sickness. It is, and, and I've often felt sorry for people who have that problem. Uh, people who do have that problem are people who generally have lost touch with the now and or can't come to grasp with it at any time. At any time. It could be in the time of McKinley. It can be in the time of George Washington. But there are always people, a large group of people in any given civilization, who feel that, uh, that the now is too complex, uh, values have disappeared, Nothing but evil stalks the land, and only when they were young were people the way they should be and beautiful and true. And uh, if you'll notice in my writing, my old man, 
uh, when I say my old man, the character of the father in there is is quite a quite a quite a quite a, a beer drinking windbag. Uh, people people uh, struggle and and uh, totally miss the boat, and uh, this is almost the antithesis of uh, nostalgia. And I've always felt sorry the minute I pick up a book, and they start describing uh, any time prior to today with golden terms how how much more real people's emotions were then if this isn't a crock of you know what it's turtle guano uh it really is if people had better morality forget it i mean you've heard the life story of al capone but uh you go up and down the scene and and i don't think any time i'll leave the subject forever I don't think any time to the people who are living it is any better or worse than any other time. Sometimes they're merely more dangerous. Uh, by dangerous, I mean there may be a major world war. You, your chances of losing your life is greater than, say, when there isn't one. But uh, as far as daily life is concerned, I doubt very much whether uh, times are harder or, or easier than they've ever been for anybody walking around. So if you were living in America in 1820 on the farm, five minutes after you sat down for your supper, the locusts came in and ate your entire next year's crop, and you sat there. Well, <laughs> uh, and the wind blew. And two weeks after you, you finally recovered from that psychic trauma, a tornado blew your house down. So I'm not so sure that it was much better at any given time than it is now. You know, and, and, uh, people who have this sad nostalgia, I think, are the saddest of all. No, I don't think they're sick. That's not, that's too easy to say that. I, I think they're sad. It's not sick, it's sad. And uh, sickness involves something else. Uh, it can verge on it. I, I've known of people uh, that, that, oh yes, I've known of people who, uh, who still think Artie Shaw is coming back, you know. They sit there hour after hour, and their rooms get smaller and smaller, and they're still wearing their their uh, their saddle shoes. And uh, they're still playing Begin the Begin over and over again. And they figure one day the world will come to its senses and start doing the real thing again, you know. And Jenny Sims and the College of Musical Knowledge will be on. And, oh, my. And, and the people who think radio used to be better than it is today haven't heard any of those transcriptions. Oh, so uh, nothing's better uh, worse than at any given time. It just depends on how large you're fletching, that's all, you know. Good old WOR New York. Next, Lester Smith in the news. The news in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. At least two persons were taken into custody tonight by police during a mass demonstration outside the Hilton Hotel on 